0: We see these babies up here on the stage. We think about uh, just the hope and the future of these kids, and we uh, think about it, we envision it, we pray for it. But all of us along the way, we get to the place where I trust you're at, where you think not only about your life and where it's been, but your life and where it's going, and you think about the end of life, and you think about the fact that every one of us, as the Bible says, it's appointed a man wants to die, and then comes the judgment. And uh, you think about the reality of that, and that's a sobering thought. <clears throat> and I trust that many of you here, as you have uh, understood the gospel, you've understood the doctrine of grace, you know that as you stand before your maker one day, the thing you're going to need is, uh, is grace. If you're going to be saved from the penalty of your sin, if you're going to be saved from judgment, the Bible's very clear that it's by grace that you're saved through faith, It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as the the, the result of works that you do, uh, that no one should boast. I mean, this is one of the first verses we teach these kids so that they understand that salvation can't be earned. It's something that God God grants and gifts to us. So I guess, in a way, if you think about what you're going to need on the day you meet your maker, you're certainly going to need grace. You're going to need to be uh, encapsulated in grace, clothed in grace. You're going to need to be, as Paul said to the Galatians, clothed in Christ. I trust that many of you know that, and you can nod at that, and, and you wouldn't speak like uh, Michael Bloomberg, for instance, the former mayor of New York City, who was being interviewed. I read this article in uh, Bloomberg, and uh, it was an interview from uh, the New York Times, and they sat him down talking about the end of life as he gets older, he's just the you know, octogenarian age now, and he uh, was asked about the afterlife, and he said, well, if there is a God, uh, and, and if there is a heaven, I'm telling you, I'm going to get there, and when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be stopped by an interview. Uh, I'm going to head straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Um, so uh, I think most of you with some understanding of our need for grace, and you've been, you've been clearly taught by the Scripture that you, you, you can't earn your way in there to have someone say that so blatantly, right? I, I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Uh, you would be uh, you, you gasp at that, as many of you did. It's appalling. But I wonder, as, uh, as, as wrong as we can look at that politician and say, you have no idea what you're talking about, uh, I just wonder if the angels look at us and think, well, um, you have no idea what you're talking about when you think about your life in, in this age. In other words, we know that when we get to the threshold of the next life, we think, wow, we need God's grace. I just wonder how much you think you need God's grace today, this week. God's grace, his favor that he gives us that we don't deserve, the unmerited blessing and acceptance of God. We say we're saved because Christ has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves, and God has granted us this. It is a gift of God, not your own doing. And you say, well, I believe that. I need grace on that day. I just wonder, how about this week? How about tomorrow? Uh, when you wake up on the other side, you know you need grace. When you wake up tomorrow morning, I just wonder how much you think you, you need grace. I know you've heard the phrase, and it's become a saying I hear, especially around church every now and then, when I ask someone, how are you doing? That's kind of the expression, how are you doing? How are you doing? And, and some of you will say, uh, better than I deserve. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I'm saying you're absolutely right, man, 100%. Uh, you are better than you deserve. And by saying that, what you're trying to do, I trust, not just echo some popular you know, radio broadcast, but... You think about the fact that I know that what I have right now, what I experience right now is grace. It's unmerited. It's unearned. Because if I got what I deserved, I wouldn't be living the life I'm living right now. Now think about that. We're going to live an eternity that we know we don't deserve. There's one day you're going to say that and have a clarity about that. I know I'm not getting what I deserve. But right now I wonder, do you think you're getting what you deserve? Even if you use that saying sometimes, I'm better than I deserve, I I 100% agree. But I think it can be just a, a response and a set of words that we don't know quite the profundity of. If I ask you the question, well, then what do you deserve? What do you deserve right now? What do you deserve today? What do you deserve this week? See, it takes a very robust doctrine of sin to be able to say, I'm not living right now the life that I deserve. I know I deserve far worse. It takes some clear doctrine of grace to be able to say, I know that I will not be, as Michael said, heading straight in. I've earned my place. It's not even close." I hope you recognize. Well, I know that's not true. God is holy. I'm a sinner. And we all fall short of the glory of God. How far do we fall short? Really, I mean, the most accurate thing Michael Bloomberg said was not even close. You're right. It's not even close, but it's not in the way you're thinking. Uh, You don't measure up. It's not even close. There will be an interview. It's like, oh, I'm not going to get interviewed here. It's called the judgment, your life's going to be evaluated. And it's not going to be based on some, uh, some scales that are going to say, well, how good were you? Because, of course, Bloomberg thinks he's a really good person. So it's not even, it's no, it's not even going to teeter. That's way better. But if I asked him, like, let's talk about your, your, your life. How about the girl that you're presently living with who's not your wife, to use a John 4 uh, expression of Jesus, the woman at the well. Do uh, you want to talk about your sin? Well, yeah, but it's outweighed by the good that I do. But we know it doesn't matter. We fall so short of the glory of God... We need God's grace in the next life. And I'm asking you right now, how much grace do you need to get through the rest of today? And do you really believe that? I just wonder if the angels look at us sometimes and think about our thoughts about, well, I worked really hard. I should get that promotion. You know, I've exercised and, and eaten well, and I don't understand why I got sick. You know, I've I, I done right in this company. I don't know why I'm not getting promoted. And we think, I've done this. I deserve that. And we think, in ways that uh, angels would gasp at, the way you gasp when you think about the next thing. I, I just We've got to recalibrate our thinking about the greatness of God, the undeserving nature of people like you and me, to not just enter into heaven, but to live on this earth and have what we would often call the common grace of God, which is hardly common at all because if anyone doesn't deserve the daily things that we do have that are blessings to us, every good and perfect gift comes from God, not our planning, not our intelligence, not our, our own greatness, our intuition, our, our whatever. We, we don't get the credit to be able to say, I'm going to rush right into this next blessing of life because I deserve it. I'd like to help with this kind of thinking. I'm going to do it from a passage that would seem strange. At first blush, you read it and you think, I don't see what this has to do with it. Well, try to follow along in this passage with me as we continue in our series on wisdom and maturity. And what I'm trying to get to here in this introduction is you're going to need some wisdom and maturity to think like this about your own life. And I'm saying it's accurate. It takes a robust doctrine of sin, it takes a clear vision of the greatness of God and it will lead you to embrace the doctrine of grace in a way perhaps you never have. And I think we can gather all of that from this passage in Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 16, which is at the end of our series on wisdom and maturity. I want to talk about us understanding the expressions of God's grace, not just on that day, but on this day. So turn there with me if you're not already in this passage, and let's look at what happens here in a scene that I assume most of you have heard before about a guy named Lucky. That's his name, Lucky. Uh, Eutychus. It's a Greek word, but Eutychus means lucky, and uh, if you read this verse at least through verse 9, you're going to say he didn't seem very lucky on this day, because Paul is preaching in the city of Troas, and let's pick up the story in verse number 7. He'd spent a week there, and he's getting in one more Sunday at this church when it says on verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Probably included the Lord's Supper and what was called the love feast and the communal meal and all of that. And Paul talked with them. Now, that's not the word preached, but it is a word where you got him at the front and he's discursing, discussing, he's answering questions, he's teaching from the truth of what God has revealed to him as an apostle. And he intended to depart on the next day, but so he's leaving. This is his last chance to address this church at Troas, which, by the way, isn't as big as Ephesus, but still, some historians say in the first century, it was already cracking over 100,000 people at Troas. It was a big city and probably plenty of Christians here listening to the Apostle Paul, and he knew he was going to leave them, so he prolonged his speech until, bottom of verse 7, what's the word? Midnight. You think I preach for a long time. Midnight, and there were many lamps, of course you 're going to need that from sunset until midnight you 're going to have to light the lamps, those oil lamps are going to burn. matter of fact, this is a big word that was used of the same things that were carried into the garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. They were translated there torches. so these are big, this is a big room it 's a big upper room, and it 's filled with these, these torches that were lit, probably fueled by oil. And you can imagine, just if you were to even light some things in your own house to keep it lit, uh, you're going to have all of that heading up, as it does, into the top regions of this place where Paul is preaching. And a young man named Lucky, verse 9, Eutychus, was sitting in the window. Okay, So he's on the, the window seal. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, Luke adds. Uh, and I don't know, it seems like Luke's getting in a little bit of a... A jab here, but um, Paul's going on and on. Eutychus. It says a young man. By the way, in verse 12, you see the word youth. Now, the best we can understand about this word that would be employed for a young person is not a kid, like a, a child child, like a five-year-old. It's probably uh, a 10 to 12-year-old. That would be the appropriate use of this vocabulary word here. So he's, he's picture that. He's 10, 12, maybe 13 years old and he's sitting there in the windowsill, and he he falls into a deep sleep as Paul just goes on and on in this this discourse. Being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, you've heard this story before, you've read this story before, you know where it's going, but let's just stop right here at verse 9 and say, what would that be like? Okay, we're a big enough church we have enough going on here all weekend. That I'd say two, three times a year, we have some kind of medical event, and, and sometimes you'll walk out and there's going to be paramedics and fire trucks out there, and, and we got someone that had some kind of medical crisis. But, but if that medical crisis took place in our church, in the church service, and someone actually expired, right? That would be a day you'd remember at church. Happened at our church, the church I grew up in, a couple scenes like that Uh, I had one near death situation that I was in, and one where the guy actually died at at the church. These things you don't forget. This is like huge and traumatic. You can imagine. I remember the one uh, my wife and I were there as teenagers watching this play out as a kid got hit by a car right out in front of the church, and and it was horrific. I mean, they were all a part of our church the guy who hit the kid, the, the, the kid, the dad, and everyone was yelling and screaming. It was chaos, it was pandemonium. And you can imagine. Scooping up the lifeless body of a child, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, and and, and hearing the moaning and the wailing of, of the, like, we came here to church and a child is dead. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. So let that sink in for a minute before you go on to verse 10. This was a day at church that no one would forget, not only because we know it turns into this miracle, but that scene alone. And by the way, not to throw this kid or his mother under the bus, but probably not the best place to be sitting, right? Especially when the sermon is going on and on and on. Knowing what's happening. I'm just saying, if you, I would assume, Orange County parents, right? You're going to see your kid up on that seat. You're like, get down, get off of there, right? This this is a dangerous place to sit. And it is about the 10, 12-year-olds that'll do stuff that is risky and unnecessarily dangerous. Am I right? So, there is a little folly here in this. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, wow, the kid deserved to get tossed out the window. But I am saying this wasn't very smart. And here we have death, and it enters the congregation at Troas. Now, verse 10, Paul goes down and bent over Now, you can imagine the crowd. This kid goes out, and, and even if it was just started slowly, like only a few people saw his sandals flip off, you know, as, they, as he heads down uh, outside... People are going to, it's going to get, it's soon everyone's going to be rushing down these two flights of stairs to get down. And Paul, the leader, so he knows he's not first there, but he comes there and he bent down, he went down and bent over him rather, and taking him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Now you can read that text and think, oh, you guys are just, you didn't know he's really alive here. That's not what's happening here. And we know that because, I mean, lots of reasons. Let's start with the big picture. There's so much correspondence here, and I'm not saying this is necessary in the book of Acts, but so much correspondence here to the prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha have similar situations take place, almost eerily parallel to some of the things that are happening there in terms of them being the agents of restoring life. And there's only a few. I mean, you can count them on two hands, less than two hands, of the situations where life is resuscitated from real death. One of them, by the way, is in the first half of the book of Acts, in chapter 9, Peter, who's the key figure in the first half, the apostle Peter, he raises, you might remember, Tabitha, aka Dorcas, to life. Do you remember that? And it's like, there was no mistaking she was dead. They had already cleaned her body, washed her body. They were preparing her body for for the grave. And Peter comes in and raises her from the dead. Second half of the book, now we have the shift from Peter to Paul. So the Apostle Peter, second half of the book, the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is really the key figures are the acts of the Apostle Peter, acts of the Apostle Paul. Of course, others too, but that's the key. And now we have again, just like Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, we have another resurrection. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal because much like we saw in the Old Testament, as the school of the prophets was, was assembled under Elijah and Elisha, we have the writing of the Old Testament. I mean, Moses, unique, starting that, just like we have the Gospels, unique, starting with, with Christ, but then we have the, the prophets being laid out in the Old Testament and the affirmation from God, the miraculous affirmation from God with miraculous signs, a rash of them with Elijah and Elisha, in particular, the two big things of, of resurrection, and then you have two resurrections in the book of Acts through these two key apostles, Peter and Paul. Right? Apostle to the Jews, apostle to the Gentiles. So there's lots here that we would expect that this isn't just, well, I want to read here that he went down and did CPR, chest compressions, and he wasn't really dead or whatever. He was dead. And, And yet he's saying now, as he gets up from this, hey, stop with the pandemonium. Stop with the yelling. Stop with the grief. Dry your eyes. The kid is alive. His life is in him. Verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten... Right? Okay, is that the Lord's Supper? Is that the meals? at that the potluck that was extended past midnight? Not, not sure, but he's going to eat. And he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak. So his preaching wasn't quite finished yet, interrupted by a little resurrection, but now he continues on. Until morning, he's preaching this guy, right? I mean, you don't want this guy as your pastor, it seems. He's preaching endlessly all the time. And they took away the youth alive. And here's a weird way to put it in the ESV. They were not a little comforted. In other words, they were massively comforted. That word comfort, by the way, if you got your software out or you got your Greek New Testament open, same word we were looking at as the centerpiece of last week's sermon, the word encouragement. Para, kaleo, encouragement. Para, alongside of, next to kaleo, to call in. And we talked about the fact that people need to be encouraged. And all the more as we see the day drawing near, we need to encourage one another. We need that strengthening. Strengthening. Well, one time you need strength when someone is falling down in grief over the loss of their child, or someone in the church. would be a lot of wet eyes in this congregation if someone died here this morning, some 10-year-old died. Right? And now they, they are massively, not a little, but massively comforted. Same word. That's why the English translators here are putting the word comfort for us. It's not a bad translation. So why isn't it encouraged? Because it seems weird in our English parlance of the word encouragement to say encouraged. It's like they were just strengthened. No, but it's the same concept. But in grief, man, if you ever need comfort, you ever need encouragement, it's when you're you're, you're grieving like that. And how are they comforted? By the fact that the story that was tragic is now amazing. He's alive. Amazing. Well, then we have all this information, and maybe that little map will help you there. It's not a great map, but it's because it's small. But if you look at what's next, we're going to sail back to Jerusalem. That's where we start in verse 13. But going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos. Assos is uh, the port city. They're going to pick up supplies. They're going to do whatever they're going to do there in that port city. But we, remember, is Luke now is back in the scene from Philippi forward. He's back in this speaking in first-person plural pronouns. We picked up at least seven names last week we looked at in the first six verses of, of Acts. So we got a big group. We learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's bringing a gift that he collected through the Macedonian, the churches, and even in in, uh, the Asian churches to bring to Jerusalem because of the terrible famine and all that was going wrong there. So they were bringing a financial gift. And so you'd think, okay, we got everything packed. We got the money chest packed. We got all the supplies packed. We just got to stop in Assos. And so they were intending to take Paul on board there for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Now, that's a weird statement. That's mysterious. We're going to get on a a ship, and we're going to leave. We're going to get going, because you needed to get back to Jerusalem. That was the plan, and um, now you're going to start walking? What what are you talking about? Verse 14, and when he met us at Assos, and it's hard to see on the map, because it's really small, but this kind of peninsula section of modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor, he walks across, which is a distance, as the crow flies, of about 20 miles. But the roads, the ancient Roman roads that are still there, parts of them at least that are uncovered, some are preserved perfectly and intact. Those Roman roads were built so well. is about a 31-mile trek from Troas to Assos. And so he ends up meeting them there. Everyone else gets in the ship. He goes by, by foot, or maybe he rented a camel or something, or a, or a donkey or a mule. We took him on board then, and we went to Mytilene. It's sailing from there. We came the following day opposite of Chios, and then the next day we went to Samos, and the next day we went on to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus, verse 16, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. Well, that's that's mean. Well, here's the thing. He spent three years in Ephesus. He had so many friends there, so much experience there. He thought, if I stop here... I'm going to be stuck here for a while. I mean, everyone's going to have to have me over for dinner and I preach long sermons and it's just going to be, it's going to take forever. So we're just going to pass this by and we're going to go on uh, to Miletus. But why? Because he's hastening to get to Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. And just for a little footnote, historically, probably because it was one of the feast days of Israel, Pentecost was, it was one of the feast days that was required by the Jews to bring an offering, and they brought them not only for the, the temple, but they brought them for the poor. This was a key time for giving alms. Now, Paul's concerned with the Christians, of course, and he's going to help the church and the Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering through this famine. But he is bringing a gift of alms, of giving to the poor, from the churches in the rich regions there of Asia Minor and Achaia and, and Macedonia in and modern-day Greece, and he's going to bring that money, and he's probably thinking, now I can also appeal to whoever can in the pilgrimage feast. They're coming from all over the place, from Alexandria, from Syria. They're going to come and bring their alms. I'm going to take the Christians there and maybe have them give and add to this, and then I can distribute it to the poor uh, Christians in Jerusalem probably, whatever. I'm speculating there, but that makes sense when he wants to get there by Pentecost. He's no longer going to celebrate those festivals the way he would have as a Jew. Maybe he was even just coming to celebrate the birth of the church, whatever. That was his intention, so he goes. The weird thing about it is, why would you walk 20, 30 miles? Uh, and, And we'll look at that when we get there. And I think all of this will help us tie this theme together, and the theme together is us understanding our need for grace. I think you would need grace, and you'd know you'd need grace. You would palpably know you need grace if someone that you love died today. You would say, oh God, right, have mercy on me. Be gracious to me. And the ultimate encouragement would be if the person that died is really not dead, they come back to life. Now, that would be a miracle. That would not be expected. That's the thing that happened very rarely in Scripture. About seven of them in all of the Bible Uh, And even the healings, very rare. We have 14 instances of healings, descriptions in the book of Acts, a lot of sick people that never got healed all throughout Asia Minor, all throughout the map of the book of Acts. So that's not common. But if God were to reverse something like that, that would be like, wow, that's a massive encouragement. And I would be encouraged by that gift of grace. Because here's the thing, here's what God promised that we as human beings, because we are sinful, we are all going to be subject to death. Romans chapter 5 explains that. The foundation of that is uh, Genesis chapter 3. The wages of sin is death. We know that from the book of Romans chapter 6, chapter 3. The idea of us dying, we know that's going to happen. You can die at 12, you can die at 22, you can die at 102, but we're all subject to death. That's the plan. For God to reverse that at any point when there's something either through a foolish mistake, an accident, or whatever it might be, if God re- that's an amazing act of grace. You'd say if your 10-year-old died and then all of a sudden was alive two hours later, you'd say, what an amazing gift of grace, and I trust you'd be encouraged by that. But here's the deal. That's the most extreme need for you saying, oh God, I need help, I need grace, I need your favor, fix this. Uh, there's a million other things between a normal great day, a normal great Sunday, and the tragedy of a death in your family. Big, big difference. And I'm just saying, let's just think of everything in between that should help us to remember that there's a lot going on in our lives that we would say, I need God's favor, or it could be far worse. Let's get back to our little saying that people say. If I say, how are you? You say, I'm better than I deserve. I'm thinking, okay, what do you deserve? And here's what I'm trying to get us to understand. There's a lot of things that happen, and, and, and we do them. Let's think about moral decisions. If we sow to the flesh, the Bible says, here's the law, we reap from the flesh corruption. If we do what is wrong, there's a consequence for that. The ultimate consequence is death. Let's go back in our minds to Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira watch Barnabas give money, and everyone applauds him, and they think, man, that guy's generous. So they come in and conspire to sell a piece of property and pretend they sold it for a particular price, which they didn't, and so they lie. They lie by leaving out some of the truth. They are deceptive so that they can bolster their reputation, and do you know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5? They both, what? Died. And, and, And everyone, like, fear fell over the congregation, it said. Well, of course it did. Why? Because everyone in the congregation has lied. Everyone in the congregation probably could look back at the last week and say, we tried to promote our, our reputation in some small way at least, maybe in a conversation, and uh, we know that wasn't right. That's all they did kind of on a bigger scale, and they did it to the pastor. So I don't know. That, I, I'm feeling like afraid. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Talk about Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, they, they, prescri- they had this prescription of how they're supposed to do the things they're supposed to do on the worship uh, platform on the, in the tabernacle with the altar, and they didn't do it. They, they, they burned unauthorized fire before the Lord. And what did God do? It struck them dead. The wages of sin is death. And the reality of that, most people don't comprehend, but you as Christians, knowing you need the grace of God for judgment day, you should know that really, if, if God were to give us justice, if we were to get what we were to, to, deserve, to deserve, if we were to get what we are deserving of getting, we, we would not have a great afternoon. Am I right? That's the reality. I need grace now as much as I need grace then because there are hard edges to truth, and truth says that if we do this, here's a consequence for that. And God, even in the garden, when Adam and Eve took that piece of fruit and they ate it when they weren't supposed to, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, in that day you will surely die. But they didn't die, not physically die, but they lost some privileges Things got harder, Harder. their relationship with God was strained, think about that, that relational death may have taken place, but their death now began, including the death of their bodies, the death of the garden, getting kicked out of the garden, the ground producing thorns and thistles, their bodies getting sick. Think about this now, everything got harder, and it got harder, and what they needed along the way, if they were ever going to survive, which they did back in that day prior to the flood, for almost a thousand years. And all of that was punctuated by God's sustaining grace, right? In him, we live and move and have our being. He gives us life and breath and everything else, right? In Christ, all things consist. Now, if we think about that, what we deserve is something far less than what we have. And if you think about even the decisions that you've made, if the Bible says you shouldn't lust in your heart, and you have. If the Bible says you shouldn't gossip, and you have. If the Bible says you shouldn't steal, and you have. The Bible says you shouldn't lie, and you have. And if that's going on, you should go, wow, if I'm living here, having broken many of God's rules, doing what is wrong, and I'm still sitting here thinking about what I'm going to do for lunch today, then you're living in the grace of God, right? There's a lot going on in your life that is good. And I just need you to know in the world in which we live, right, we have a world that's pushing against what God has said to do. We have a enemy, Satan, right, is is, is about death and destruction, He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And our bodies, we have a part of our body called our flesh, right? This impulse of selfishness to to do wrong. It's the constant thing baiting us into taking the temptation. And so we're constantly, in every way, affected by culture, the world, affected by our own impulses of sin, our flesh, and we got an enemy that's out there messing things up and tempting us all week long. The reality of those things, you think, if I engage in any of that, thinking like the world, giving in to, to, to fleshly desires, which the Bible says none of us is without sin, First John 2. We all stumble in many ways, James chapter 3. If this is a reality and we're still around thinking about how we're going to spend our vacation, right, that, that's an amazing thing. You're living in grace, and you need to, number one, expect a continual need for grace, We never abuse that, but number one, you ought to think that through, that we should, as Christians, in a fallen world, in a fallen body, making some dumb decisions, sometimes foolish, sometimes folly, sometimes rebellion against our Father, you just need to know you need grace. You need God to be kind. You need God, to quote Psalm 103, to not reward us according to our iniquities. And when He doesn't reward us according to our iniquities, what happens? We're living in grace. We get God's grace. Now, people struggle with that because they think, well, if I'm getting God's grace, I'll just sin. Well, listen, you're not always going to get God's grace, ask Nadab and Abihu or Ananias and Sapphira, or many other people who have done things they should not have done, and they've paid in some big way, and it happens a lot. And I'm just saying that we need to be the kinds of Christians that say, I cannot think with a presumption that I should get whatever it is I work for, whatever it is I, I plan for, because, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. Job was a pretty good guy. Would you agree with that? Not only is he a pretty good guy, God said he's an outstanding guy. Comparatively, better than his neighbors. Just like Daniel, better than the other people. Just like Noah, better than his neighbors. Just like Abraham, better than his neighbors. They're all flawed, they're all sinful, but they're better. So they're not good in an absolute sense, but they are good and righteous in a comparative sense. And God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He says that to Satan. And Satan goes, oh, he only loves you because you're being nice to him. Only loves you because you're giving him all that stuff. Now, here's one thing Job understood as he sacrificed as the patriarchal priest of his family. This is obviously before the Levitical law. He was there sacrificing, and you did that as an act of understanding that you were a sinner. Matter of fact, he sacrificed for his children because he knew his children were sinners. He said, they might have even sinned in their hearts, something I don't even know about. So I'm going to try to plead and intercede before God, the holy God, for my sinful children and my sinful life. And so he understands grace. If there's one thing Job understands, is grace. And everything goes wrong. God then takes his children, who he knows are sinners, he knows that. And the house comes and collapses on top of them all, and a servant comes in and says, Your kids are all dead. I just want you to think about that. When you say I'm better than I deserve, if your kids are all alive, you're like, ah, oh, better than I deserve. Do you really know what you're saying? Think about it. I think Job knew what he was saying. You know who didn't understand? What he was saying? His wife. Let's look at that. Job chapter 2. His wife did not understand. Let's exonerate the husbands here for a second on Father's Day. (laughs) Job understood it. His wife did not. And his wife thought like most of us think, including the men in the room. We think this way. I am doing better than other people. I deserve the good stuff. And, And we think that. We don't say it out loud very often if we're good in our theology. And yet the reality is, when the bad things happen, we think, why are bad things happening to good people, right? You've, you've heard that. Well, look at what his wife says, Job chapter two, drop down to verse number nine. His wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? It's a bit of a rhetorical statement, like why in the world are you doing that? Why? I mean, why would you keep doing good if the good isn't paying off? Think about it. You're so concerned about whether or not God is pleased with your children. Your children just died. You keep trying to do the right thing, and, and you think, uh, you know, I want to serve the Lord and, and please the Lord, and you do all the stuff that you do, and yet here you are sick. I don't understand that. But here's the idea in his mind that she doesn't get, and, and that is, I don't understand why you keep being good. I don't get it. There's just be any reward in it. Well, I do think that Job understood grace. She didn't. She thinks you should be mad at God. Curse God and die. Just give it up. Stop. Just give it up, check out, and you should be mad at God. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. There's an archaic, ancient way to say it, but there it is. You're being ridiculous. Why? Because he understands something. What does he understand? Shall we receive good from God? Now look at that phrase. There is something Job understood. He could be comparatively better than his neighbors, but he knows he's better than he deserves. He knows that. So he's getting good from God. Here's a word to describe that, grace. He knows he's getting grace because as a sinner, he knows he should be cast into outer darkness away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. To quote what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, that's what he should deserve, but he knows I'm not. I may be better than my neighbors, if he even thinks in those terms comparatively, but the reality is I know I don't deserve the good that I have and God has given me good, that's grace. Shall I receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Because here's what he understood about the evil. The wages of sin is death. I understand this. You sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh corruption. I know I may not have indulged in the flesh as much as my friends have or the people in the neighborhood, but I understand this. It's gravy and grace to have the life that I have. And here's God's divine commentary on that. Bottom of verse number 10. In all of this, Job was kind of thinking in crazy terms. No, Job did not sin with his lips. He was saying the right things. Now, what we know because when we get to chapter three, we know some things are brewing in his mind and he ends up trying to shake his fist at God. So we see this all deteriorate. But the idea in his mind, as he says this, at least the words are coming out and God is saying, this is it, he's got it. He understands it. He didn't sin with his words here. He doesn't accuse God of being wrong because God, if he took the whole world, including your life and your family and your health and wadded it all up and threw it in the trash, right, God would be perfectly just in that because we are all sinners living in a sinful culture under, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 the, the lordship of Satan, right? The God of this world, he's doing his mess here. 1 John 5, he's out there, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we now, even as Christians proclaiming Christ and trusting in the finished work of Christ, our flesh, we continue to, to sin. I mean, we don't sin like we used to, perhaps, but you and I can think honestly about our sin, and we would never talk like Michael Bloomberg, right? We know that. And so we realize this, we need grace every single day. You are, in fact, better than you deserve. And I am better than I deserve. And I know that takes a robust doctrine of of sin and depravity for me to get to that place, but we got to get to that place. Because when the kid falls out of the upper window and death comes to our day, and it's coming, right? It's going to happen. Someone you love is going to die. could happen this week, next week. You're going to get diagnosed with some cancer. You're going to get some brain tumor, or something's going to go wrong in your body, or some terrible things are going to happen to your business, or you're going to lose your home, or something horrible is going to happen to your relationship. It's going to happen. And for you to continue to say, I'm still better than I deserve is going to be a hard thing to say. One more passage on this, and then I'll back off just a little bit. Lamentations chapter three. Lamentations, that's not a happy book. Lamentations, it's a lament. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But in the middle of this, in chapter 3, here's the centerpiece of this book. It's an acrostic poem in Hebrew, and he's talking about the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and how sad everybody is, and all the best of Jerusalem is being hauled off to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar and his armies has just wreaked havoc in the land. And in Lamentations chapter 3, drop down to verse number 19, I hope some familiar words to you. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings. Even if we think about corporately, the the first person plural mind, our affliction and our wanderings, the reality of Israel being taken captive by Babylon was that they had been warned a million times. The prophets had come and said, stop with your idolatry, stop with your compromise, stop with your selfishness. You're not keeping God's rules. You don't care about God. Stop, or there's going to be judgment here. You're going to sow and you're going to reap. And um, the wanderings of their moral life certainly had led to their affliction. How bad was it? Well, now they're sitting there in the detritus city of Jerusalem had been torn down by the armies, and it's like wormwood and gall. They're drinking poison. It's gross. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. Now, the humility of knowing, I know we deserve this. I know we're getting what we deserve. I know we have no promises of prosperity. We really, as human beings, fallen. We, We should have way worse than we have. We are humbled. But this I'll call to mind. And therefore, I will have hope. How? Why? What? What are you going to think? Verse 22, the steadfast love, the covenant love, the love of God that he sets on us and doesn't remove even when we're bad, right? It never ceases. His mercies, you know what that means, right? I'm laying off what you deserve. I'm not giving you the full vent of your your sin here that you deserve. Never come to an end. They are new every morning. If you're singing the lament of, of Jeremiah, You still have something here. You've got life and you've got breath. Even though you've lost your property, you've lost your family, some of your family's been taken slaves by Babylon, they're new every morning. God is faithful. He continues in his covenant love to be faithful to the people. And it doesn't feel as good and a lot of your privileges are gone, but the Lord, I'm gonna make him my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'm gonna hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Just wait, be faithful, bow your head down and accept the reality of your sin. I get that. Have that soul that seeks him. For the soul that seeks him, the Lord is good. It is good that one should wait quietly, right, humbly, not shaking their fist at God, not cursing God for the salvation of the Lord. That picture of knowing in the midst of suffering right, that God is still going to give us good, that some of you, because we're not seeing apostles raise the dead here in this age, I hope you understand God gives grace even in the terrible situation. I was just reading a book about a professor of theology who had, who was driving down a road at night after a play with his mother, his wife, and his kids, and both, they got hit by a drunk driver, and the mother, his mother, his wife, and his daughter of what, eight or nine years old, all of them died in that car accident. He was there in the strewn bodies, in the ditch, trying to bring them back to life, and they all died, right? Mouth to mouth, everything he did, couldn't save. He writes a book about the grief, It's interesting because the book's called The Disguised Grace because he sees the grace of God even in the midst of the loss that he's experienced. And one of the chapters, which we would have titled, Why Me? He he titles, Why Not Me? right? I mean, there's something there about that. There's something that helps to recalibrate. Now, wait a minute. I understand the world's filled with death and pain and violence and drunkenness and problems and all the issues. And I'm just thinking, uh, I got to get this in perspective. Did he love his wife? Cherished his wife. They were married over 20 years. He loved his daughter. Of course he loved his daughter. He loved his mother, right? I mean, of course. And he lost them all in one accident in one day. And all I'm telling you is there's something about even in the midst of pain, God being able to give us that grace. You're going to need his grace every day to get through every challenge of life. And a lot of it we're contributing to. A lot of it are decisions we're making that are foolish. A lot of things that we do, right, even contribute to it and should be far worse. But we are better than we deserve. Back to our passage. That was way too long on that topic, but I, I, I want to get you ready for what's coming here. Verse 10, Paul bends over, leans down, goes down, bends over this kid, takes him in his arms, says, don't be alarmed, his life is in him. So here is a resurrection that takes place. This kid is resuscitated to life. Now he'd later die, but he's risen here. Paul had gone up, had broken bread and eaten, conversed with them. I'm sure they're talking a lot about what had just happened, obviously. They'd eaten bread, conversed for a long time until daybreak. I mean, it'd be hard to go to sleep, I would think. And so, departed. And they took the youth away alive, and they were massively encouraged. They were massively comforted. It was not a little bit of comfort. They went away going, wow, that was a gift of God. Now, there's a lot that should happen in our lives that does not happen. And when it does not happen, we ought to take notice of that, and we should be encouraged by that. We should take comfort in that. Let's put it that way. Number two, we should take comfort in God's gracious gifts. Now, probably not going to have a resurrection in the congregation this week, I would say. I can I can safely prognosticate that. Uh, But here's the deal. There's gonna be a lot of little resurrections of some kind. There's gonna be something. There's gonna be some little thing that happens that you say, well, there is an act of God's grace. There's a gift of God. There's a restraint of evil in my life. There's a, a pulling back of something that I know should happen or could happen or would happen or has happened to a lot of other people. But to me, today, it's not happening. It's it's a grace of God. My marriage continues. My house I still live in, right? My body's still functioning. I, my lungs are still oxygenating my blood. It's all, God is good. We need to see those gifts and recognize that God is in those gifts, and you ought to say, there's some encouragement. There's comfort. Now, that can be hard when it's difficult, but, but I'll tell you, it, it's like that analogy that Jesus gave us. I should at least give you the reference. It's found in John chapter um, 16, When he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you'll have sorrow now, but when I see you again, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now, there's a sense in which the joy that they have at seeing the resurrected Christ, that's true, and it settles into a kind of joy that anchors them through all the trials. But the ultimate seeing of Christ that he talked more about than the other was this, I'm coming back with the glory of my Father on the clouds, and I'm going to establish the kingdom. You got to pray for it every day. Your kingdom come. That ought to be our our focus. So the time when we see him and he comes back, because we're not living there in the first century seeing the resurrected Christ, but now when he comes back and sets up his kingdom, that's the kind of unmitigated, unending joy that we're going to have. When he wipes away the tears, there's no mourning, no crying, no death. That's the good stuff. And we'd all agree that that's the good stuff. And when that happens, no one's going to take away your joy. No one. I mean, that's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of that statement. But for now... It's like the pangs of childbirth. It's like contractions. Now, I just want you to think about this. We touched on this last week. All the more as you see the day drawing near, what's the Bible say? The forecast is things are going to get worse. It's going to be like the days of Noah. So we're in bad times. And even with our bodies, we have that experience, right? More stuff hurts on my body than it's ever hurt in my whole life. I mean, getting old is not fun, right? Uh, Yeah, right. So here's the thing. We have this experience of things getting worse until they get better. And I just want you to know, it's like the contractions. And the thing that gives us hope, even when the contractions get close together, right, is that we know where this is headed. But the thing about the person that's sitting there in a in a in a in the maternity ward at Saddleback Hospital between contractions, getting a drink through the little straw or whatever, eating the ice chips or breathing or holding their husband's hand without yelling that or getting their head wiped. It, there's, a, there's a respite between the contractions. And here's the thing. You can tell it's come on, keep going. And we jokingly said in the baby dedications, you know, was the whole day wasn't fun, but the day was great. Why? Because the baby was born. Now I want you to think about that. We have this experience of the difficulties. We could even have Nebuchadnezzar's army come in and wipe out our church. But between the times of watching the terrible things of life happen, right, the respites are God's grace, and we know, even though they seem to be fewer and fewer and far between in terms of the kinds of times when we sit back and we feel that satisfaction of the blessings of God in our life, because a lot of things are going wrong. The outer man's the king. The inner man gets renewed day by day as we focus on what's coming, the birth of the baby, the birth of the kingdom. It's coming. And so that helps us. What we got to do is between the struggles, we got to look at those gifts of God's grace, whatever they might be. You have a good afternoon, get a good night's sleep, all of those things that may be decreasing as we end the end, get near the end, right? These are reminders of God's gift. You got to be encouraged by every single one of those. Take comfort in God's gracious gifts. We've got to realize that. We've got to do that and there's no passage I love more than Psalm 103, just to make this point. Go there quickly with me. Psalm 103, where David writes to speak to himself, bless the Lord, O my soul. He talks to him, his inner person. Hey, you got to bless God. And all this within me. It ought to be sincere. It ought to be wholehearted. Bless his holy name. Why? Bless the Lord, O my soul. And here's the thing that's going to fuel it. Forget not all his benefits. Does that kind of comport with that second point you just wrote down? His gracious gifts, you have to itemize those. You have to remember those. Well, I didn't have any uh, death sentence that got reversed this week in my child. I understand that. But you had something, a benefit that came from knowing God. How about this? Your your sins were not fully dealt with by the justice of God. He forgives all your iniquities. Because your iniquities, the wages of sin is death, and, and, and that hadn't happened. As a matter of fact, as a Christian, you recognize, drop down in this passage, how about this, verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, verse 12, so far does he remove uh, our transgressions from us. Now, we know that's a truth that gets us qualified for the kingdom, but look back up to verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He won't always chide. Now, he does discipline. But he won't keep his anger forever. Here's the key. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. That's what we deserve. That was point one. Now look at all the good that takes place. His love, his steadfast love. And it's not only forgiveness, but go back up to the beginning of this. He heals all your diseases. No, I'm sick, man. I got some chronic thing. I get it. But right now you're sitting here listening to a sermon on Sunday morning. Right? and you're oxygenating your blood, and you're alive, and you're probably going to have some food and probably go through your mouth, not some tube in the side of your body. I mean, God is still granting you stuff, and, and he, he's keeping you going to this day. And not to mention, he's redeemed your life from the pit. You avoided the pit, the grave, right? There were times that you, you could have been dead, but you're not. He crowns you with steadfast love, and there's our word mercy. And not only that, you've pushed back from the table with a few meals, haven't you? Verse 5, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles you had those times. Well, not as often as they used to be. I get that. But you should be counting every benefit that God gives. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. There was a hymn that I used to hear as a kid, and I hated it. I hated it because it was so dorky, I thought. Um, it was written in 1897 by a businessman in New Jersey that turned into a preacher and a hymn writer, and maybe it was the tune, but I just thought it was so silly and just the way it was worded until I started, I became a Christian, and I started studying our need for the very thing here. I've quoted this psalm, I don't know, probably 10 times through 35 years of preaching because it just encapsulates the need that we have to do exactly what we're talking about, to forget not all of his benefits. Here it is. Maybe you've heard it. When upon life's billows, right, the waves, you are tempest-tossed. You're in the middle of a storm, When you're discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God has done. You ever heard this song? Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy that you're called to bear? Well, count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly and you will be singing as the days go by. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. About when you're, well, yeah, but everybody's got a better life than me and they're not sick and their kids didn't die. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. So, amid the conflict, great line. So, amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is overall count your many blessings. Angels will attend. They'll stand and applaud. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journeys in. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. That is what we need. And you've got to attend to the specific realities of what God is doing between the contractions of your pain. And when you say, I'm better than I deserve, you need to say that when your business crashes, when your marriage is messed up, and when you have to bury someone in your family. I'm better than I deserve. Because I can see the hand of God in the midst of my struggle, in the load of my care, in the difficulty of my relationship, in the problems with my finances. I can see him. And I see that I don't forget his benefits because it brings me that sense of God's favor in my life, and I need it. Now, that's the truth, and you need to know it. We need to expect continual need for grace, and we live in a sinful world. You continue to sin. We see God's grace in refraining and not paying you back according to what you deserve, and you are given things that you should say, wow, look at that. I should be encouraged that God loves me and continues in his grace to give me these things, and I can say that. You can go to your small groups, and you can talk about it, right? but you're never gonna make this a part of your life unless you do one more thing, and I think it's embedded in the next section about Paul's travels, and I could be wrong, but you ask him when you meet him but here's the thing. Verses 13 through 16, here's a statement about his his plans. They were going to go ahead to the ship, and everything in my mind, everything in my mind, Luke and the team and everyone else that's with him, it makes complete sense that Paul's going to get on that ship and they're going to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because he's trying to make haste to Jerusalem. Everything makes sense that he's going to get on that ship. Intending to take Paul aboard there, middle of verse 13. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. What do you mean? He packed a backpack. He rented a mule. And when, he, and then, and when verse 14, he met us at Assos, we took him on board and we went to, to Middle East. Now, if we're going to go, and I'm trying to make haste to South America, and we're going to take a boat out of Newport Harbor. Um, if I am there, and the day you've packed all the stuff, you've gotten everything together, you packed the Bibles for a mission trip, or whatever we're doing, And I say, well, I know we're going to stop in Dana Point to get some supplies at the harbor there. I'm going to walk. You're going to think you're crazy, right? What? You're going to walk? No, 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 no. Get on the boat. Get on the boat, Pastor Mike. Nope, going to walk. Now, that's a weird thing. And my question is, why? And every commentator writes a commentary on this, they all ask why. And they come up with fanciful reasons why Paul didn't get on the boat. And they're all speculating. And I'm telling you, I'll admit it, I'm speculating as to why. But there's a reason. Paul's not nuts. There's a reason he's not getting on the boat. And I'm just saying, why? Because the commentators go everywhere. I mean, some of them are like, he didn't pack his Dramamine. He's going to get seasick or something. It's like, no. So you ask him if he was seasick. That's not the reason. But here's my guess. It's the guest that I think makes him obedient to what the scripture continually tells us to do. And it's hard to do when we're with the guys and we're always busy and we're always in the midst of activity. The guy can't even sit there and preach at Troas and, and, and be done by nine o'clock, right? He's preaching in past midnight. And then when all this happens, you think, let me get a meal here, I'm going to bed. He's staying up and talking with these people until the morning. What he needs right now is a break. What he needs right now is time by himself. And you should look this up, or maybe I should post some things on social media. There's a great uh, section of the Roman road that still is in place from Troas to Assos. It's a 31 mile trek. And in that 31 mile trek, it's beautiful, it's idyllic. Even today, you can see it, and you can see the hills and mountains that would not have changed at all in terms of the topography of it all. And Paul takes this by himself. And I'm thinking, why do you do that? It's a two day travel, it's a two day trip. And of course, that night that he's going to sleep, imagine that night of sleep. He'd been up the night before. He had been the agency of, the, of a, the only, one of two resurrections in the book of Acts. I mean, he's going to get away. Why not sleep on the ship? The guy's getting away. And, and here's what I know about when he gets to Miletus, and he calls the leaders of the church of Ephesus. He starts talking about things. We're going to call it a series on something like principles on leadership or Christian leadership or something that's coming up next. I already got the title. I've just forgotten it. I won't forget it when we start preaching. But the next series, like eight sermons on what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. It's going to be hopefully a good, good ser- series of sermons. But here's the deal. He gets around to talking about the fact, that I know I'm never going to be able to make it back to Ephesus again. And I was in Miletus, but they've come and they've traveled. They've met him there to have this discussion but he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I don't know what awaits me, but I know it's going to be change, it's going to be difficulty. But he's writing elsewhere and speaking about this future, and he's doing it with such steeled resolve and courage and commitment. And I can only think that he's thinking about this with such strong, courageous optimism and fearlessness because of what he's just been through. I mean, think about what he just went through, and I think he just needed time. I'm just guessing. We'll find out one day to do what the Bible says we must do, and that is we've got to do, here's a couple words. We need to remember the deeds of the Lord. That's everywhere in the scripture. And and here's another word that that the Eastern religions have ripped off from us. Uh, Meditate. We're supposed to meditate on the things of the Lord, on on the word of God. Meditation is not sitting in some hot yoga class, sweating in the corner, zeroing out your mind. Meditation is, here's a good synonym in English, to cogitate, to ruminate to take a truth and to get it in our head and to continue to soak it up in our minds, to keep our minds very active and keep it focused and undistracted on those things, right? Paul needed to get on a mule or walk this 31 miles to the next port, even though that made no sense and it was going to be way slower. He did that and he cut across this little, this little peninsula of land in in modern-day Turkey, I think, to number three, to take time to reflect on God's grace. It steeled him, it encouraged him, it strengthened him, it emboldened him, but it was about the fact that God was going to be gracious to him just as he had been gracious through him in the ministry there in Troas. Now, I could be wrong, but I know this is a biblical concept because you and I are supposed to be thinking about, how about this one? I'll I'll end with this. Turn to to Psalm 77 to think about remembering the deeds of the Lord. This is the, the command that we have. Just like Jesus did it, right? He got away... I think of uh, Mark chapter one, where they said, "Where are? You? We were looking for you?" He was apart by himself, spending time alone. Jesus wasn't a recluse. He wasn't antisocial, but he needed time to reflect on his relationship with God, the Father, and he needed that sense of even thinking through, gathering wisdom, gathering himself in those situations, and so should we. We need this time to reflect on God's favor on us. That favor makes us strong. it encourages us. us Psalm 77, verse 11. Psalm 77, 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Here's the godly thing Asaph says. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders from of old. Verse 12. I will ponder all your work. Right? If I'm supposed to not forget any of his benefits, now I'm called here to ponder it, to remember it, to think about it. I will meditate. There's our word, on your mighty deeds. I'll ruminate it on it. I'll give my mind to it. I'll focus on it undistracted. We've got to have that. Your way, O God, is holy. I mean, you're perfect, and I'm not. I need grace. What God is great like our God? Yet you're the God who works wonders. You've been kind to us. You've stooped to do good things. You've made known your might among the peoples. And with your arm, look at what you've done to us. You've redeemed us, your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. I mean, that's just a great statement of him recognizing, Asaph, recognizing the grace of God upon him and his people. And he says, I'm not going to forget it. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to ponder it. I'm going to meditate on it. I'm just asking you to take this sermon and and just go, oh, that's, something, that's true, I either do that, or go to a small group and just, let's talk about that. You've got to get by yourself and you've got to ruminate on the things that God does to show you his favor. You're his child, he set his favor on you, he's been good to you, he's given you gifts that you need to focus on more than the complaining and the moaning and all the stuff that you do to look at the bad stuff. You're looking at all the contractions and you're not looking at the respite between all that. And even in the difficulty, you're not finding the faithfulness of God, saying his mercy is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We need a lot more of that than we have. And I assign you to that task. Whether or not that was what Paul was doing, I think it was. But we need to be people that are obedient to Psalm 7711. They went to church that day, and everyone left encouraged in Troas. It came through means they never went to church expecting them to be encouraged, right? The resurrection of some 12-year-old kid. Uh, but I hope today you go home encouraged that what we have is a life that is enveloped by grace that we do not deserve. We are doing better than we deserve in every way. And we will do better than we deserve on Judgment Day. I don't want you just thinking about realm two as when you're going to need the grace of God. I want you to think about realm number one, the one we live in now tomorrow morning. Today, we need the grace of God. And because of God's mercy, we have it. And we ought to rejoice in that. Let's pray. God, help us in a world filled with struggles, and even personal loss and difficulty to remember that in this fallen world with an enemy that is wreaking havoc in the world and flesh that continues to give in and capitulate to temptation when we know we shouldn't, we, we, we deserve so much worse than we have. We deserve to have no hope. We deserve to have no redemption. We deserve to have no blessings. And yet you've lavished those on us even though it may not be as much as the guy next door or the other Christian in my small group, we have so many things for which to be thankful, but we've got to remember those benefits, we have to ponder them, and we have to meditate on them. So God, give us more time even this week. Let us make time to walk down a road, maybe walk down a beach through a park, spend time by ourselves on a bike ride, whatever it takes just to shut out other things and other people to spend by ourselves remembering your kindness to us. God, of course, I'm saying all that to Christians here this morning, but if people are here and they have not put their trust in Christ, today's the day for them, God, to see that that grace is provided, even though they might think like Bloomberg and think they deserve it all because they're halfway good or more than good. And in reality, God, we know that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We need your grace, your salvific grace in Christ. And I pray more people would experience that even today. In Jesus' name, amen.